Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, is our text for today. This is the 14th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 14 handwritten pages, and the title of the sermon today is The Good in Bad People. The Good in Bad People. Please turn to Romans chapter 2, and as you do, I want to remind you that God loves you, and I want you to be thinking about the fact that God loves you through the remainder of this sermon and through the remainder of your entire life. Hear the word of the Lord, Romans 2, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have, who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Our Father in heaven, judgment day is coming. And Lord, we want to be ready. And so Lord, I pray that today this sermon will help us and assist us in being ready. Lord, I do pray today for those who do not have understanding. I pray that that would be granted to them by your spirit. Lord, I pray today for those who do have understanding, Lord, that they would be assisted by your spirit to do the work and to do the word of God. And I pray for myself, Lord. I pray that with joy and clarity and conviction and, and compassion, I will give the word to your people, and Lord, you will do what only you can do, Lord, and that is bring glory to yourself. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got no outline this morning. I'm only going to give you a verse-by-verse -verse explanation of the text, and then when I'm done doing that, I will make five observations. Here's the context. We are in the book of Romans, and in Romans, Paul writes about the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners. Uh, he writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He writes that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He writes that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He writes that Christ died for the ungodly, and he writes that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all in the book of Romans. That is that is the gospel. His, his point in this particular point uh, in the book of Romans is to, to explain the gospel. But here's the thing about God saving sinners through the gospel. One cannot be saved until first they are lost. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul goes out of his way to prove that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, those who do not have the law, are lost. And now we find ourselves in Romans chapter 2, and Paul is proving here that the Jews are lost apart from Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul is going to prove that everyone apart from Christ is lost. So here we are in chapter 2. 
in verses 1 through 5, Paul has exposed the hypocrisy and the inconsistency of the Jews. That is, that they pass judgment on others while they themselves are committing the same sins. As God's chosen people, they perceive themselves to be privileged characters. You remember Mr. Privileged Character. Uh, they misinterpret the patience of God as a license to go on sinning, thinking that the inactivity of God in immediate judgment is an indicator that everything is okay. And that is really a misinterpretation of what is going on. In fact, the inactivity of God is a bad thing for them because what is happening as they are going on without being judged immediately, they are testing his patience and they are stockpiling sins which they will have to answer for in the final judgment. In verses 6 through 11, which we looked at last week, Paul shows the self-righteous Jew that there is absolutely no favoritism with God. It does not matter who you are. God is going to evaluate what you have done, not who you are. Which brings us to our passage today, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And what Paul is going to do in these verses, he is going to continue to prove the point that being Jewish will not get you any points in the final judgment. And he illustrates it by looking at Gentiles who do not possess the law of Moses. So we're going to go through it phrase by phrase, but let's set it up first by glancing at the immediate context, which is Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. Now, he explains in verse 12 what this means. Uh, let's look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Uh, the word law here refers to the law of Moses that was given by God to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses. It is recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments are a part of the law that is being referred to here. These laws were given to the nation of Israel as their national legislation. And in verse 12, it speaks of those who have sinned without the law. This is referring to those who have never heard of the law of Moses. Uh, they are called Gentiles or Greeks. These people are not in a covenant relationship with God. He has not revealed his rules to them in written form like he did to the Jews. Nevertheless, he says in verse 12, they are still guilty sinners and they will eternally perish without the law. Even though they don't have the law, they will still eternally perish. Uh, which proves the point that you don't have to own a Bible in order to be considered a guilty sinner. Uh, and then he speaks of the Jews here. Now let's put the, 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 let's look at the big picture. His audience is saved people consisting of Jews and Gentiles. But here in chapter two, he is writing about unsaved Jews. And, and he speaks of the Jews in verse 12, and he says, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Speaking of unsaved Jews there. The Jews were under the law of Moses. They were his covenant people, and they were aware of his requirements. They knew that they were responsible to keep his rules, and here's the key part to it. They agreed to keep his rules. 
in a covenant which was ratified on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. The people hear the law of God and they go before God and they say this. This is really important. Exodus 24 verse 4. The people say to God, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, just to put it in the vernacular, they signed the contract. And verse 12 says, all who have sinned under the law, they, they, they know the law, they've agreed to keep the law, will be judged by the law. Uh, judged here means that they will be evaluated and found guilty, or as it says earlier in the verse, that they will perish eternally with the law. Uh, Leon Morris puts it this way, all will be judged according to their response to the revelation God has given them. When I read the word revelation here, it doesn't mean the last book of the Bible. It means that which has been revealed by God. Let me read it again. All will be judged according to their response to the revelation God has given them. The Gentiles have not been given the law. Therefore, they will not be judged by the law. People will be condemned not because they have the law or do not have the law, but because they are sinners, end quote. And he says it much more clearly than I do. So possession of or knowledge of the law is absolutely irrelevant when it comes to the judgment. What is, what is relevant, however, is spelled out in verse 13. And notice what he says there. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified, declared righteous. In a book in which Paul speaks much about justification, this is his first usage of this word, and he's saying that the doers of the law will be justified or declared righteous by doing the law. Now, verse 13, the, the hearers of the law are the Jews. But he points out that simply hearing the rule without acting upon it, it is what James calls self-deception, James 1.22. But the doers, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so the Jew, Mr. Privileged Character in Romans 2, is self-deceived. He thinks that because he has the law, he will be justified simply by virtue of having it. Back in January of 2022, I asked my wife to go online and find me some exercise equipment. And so I found an elliptical way out east in Long Island. It was a cold winter day, and I hired our then youth director, Jackson Heward, to ride with me out to Long Island, and I paid for disassembled, uh, carried, put in my van, brought back to Queens, an elliptical. Jackson helped me carry it upstairs. We reassembled it, and it was all set. And it has served me very well <clears throat> as a place to hang wet towels. <laughs> it has not enhanced my physical fitness. I rarely use it. It is not the possession of the elliptical that shall make one fit and slim, but it is the doers or the users of it. 
Uh, Paul is not saying that we become righteous or justified by doing the law. Rather, what he's saying is the one who is already justified, declared righteous by God through Jesus, through imputation, through substitution, through the gospel, through the blood of Christ, the one that is already saved, will evidence that by doing the law or being obedient to the rules. Remember what Martin Luther said. He said that we are not justified by works, but we are not justified without works. So works do not justify you, but works do give evidence that you are justified. And the point of the verse is not to teach how justification is obtained. The point of the verse is to spell out that it is not obtained simply by a written record of God's requirements. If you walk into my office, you will see an endless sea of books. Um, and you hopefully benefit in these sermons from what is written in those books. And every once in a while, someone will say to me, have you read all of these books? I'm, I'm a very prideful and I'm a very arrogant person, but even I myself cannot come up with, with a straight face a lie which would indicate that I read all those books. For the most part, they are shelf art. You only benefit from what I read and study. You do not benefit simply by what I obtain. And in case you were not paying attention, this is identical to the elliptical illustration. So maybe what I should start doing is reading books while I'm on the elliptical. But I think you get the point. Let's move on to verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is really brilliant logic. Paul is using Gentiles, those who do not own Bibles, as an illustration of how everyone, without exception, is responsible before God. Follow the logic of verse 14. Have you ever wondered why unsaved people can do acts which are morally upright? Thus the title of today's sermon, The Good in Bad People. There are unsaved people who fall on hand grenades for their fellow soldiers. There are Unsaved people who form foundations for kidney disease research. There are unsaved people who remain loyal to their spouses. And sometimes, sometimes, sadly, these unsaved people behave more righteously than professing believers do. It is because they do have a law. Stick with the argument. They do have a law. It is not the law of Moses. It is not a law which is spelled out in the Bible like the law of Moses with dietary restrictions or ceremonial cleansings or detailed descriptions of what you should do and should not do. But nevertheless, it is still a law. The argument that Paul is making here is that everyone has a law. And in some ways, here's the argument, it matches or it coincides with the actual written law of God. Now, Paul is not saying that this law, which Gentiles have, is perfectly in line with God's law. 
And Paul is not saying that Gentiles keep it flawlessly. He is simply saying that when a pagan, when a Gentile, when a person that does not own a Bible, when an unsaved, unchurched person by nature does something which is morally upright, or when they forbid something which is morally detestable, and what they do or what they do not believe matches the law of God, then what they are doing is they are proving that the law of God is holy and righteous and good and that they agree with that law. And so they can't stand in the judgment and say, well, I didn't know that this was wrong. Yes, you did know that it was wrong, and proof that you knew that it was wrong is that sometimes you obeyed it. When I was in the 11th grade, I remember, and never mind the details, I remember getting called into Mr. McCluskey's office in order to receive my weekly cracks from the paddle. And as I walked in, he gave me a lecture and he said, you know more? He said, here's the problem with the junior class. You guys showed up in September and you behaved yourselves for two months. And so now we know that you're capable of doing it. Uh, your class is the worst class we have ever had. And we thought that maybe you were incapable of, of, of good behavior. But for two months, you behaved yourselves well. That's the worst thing that you could have done. Now we know that you can do it, and you are responsible. And then he paddled me, and I left the office. The good old days. The, the phrase, they are a law to themselves, does not mean that they get to choose what the rules are. It means that that they themselves, within themselves, by nature, are prove, proving that they agree with God and they agree with the law of God by occasionally obeying it. And it is their acts of righteousness and their insistence upon justice which proves that they know law. And even though they do not possess the law of Moses, they still know the difference between right and wrong, and they agree with the law that it is just. Think about it. Why does a thief, and I'm talking about a thief that has been raised in a home where they never had the law of Moses, they never had a Bible, they never went to church, they knew nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does that thief cover his or her tracks when he is in the act of stealing? It is simply because they know that it is wrong. Why does an adulterer sneak around? But why does a person who has done wrong lie about what they have done? If there's nothing to be ashamed of, why lie about it? The fact of the matter is, they do those things, they cover their tracks, they sneak around, they lie about it because they know that it is wrong. And now that begs the question, how in the world do they know that it was wrong if they never have received a written copy of the law? Verse 15 gives the answer to that. Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Concentrate on the first part of that verse. 
they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Not written on parchment like Moses did, but written by God on their hearts. Now, let's tie Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 together. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about the general revelation which comes by nature. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, glance back at that. And notice that it says, For his, that is God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Remember several weeks ago we talked about this, and a person looks at nature and they have to come to the conclusion that there is a God. Any human being can look at what God has created and conclude there has to be a creator. Now as we move into chapter 2, it is somewhat the same but slightly different. In Romans 2, Paul is saying the fact that Gentile people have and keep rules which match the law of God written by Moses, it proves that Gentiles, in other words, a person that has never read the Bible, it proves that Gentiles do indeed possess the law of God. Not all of the specifics of the Mosaic law, but generally speaking, what Paul is saying is that people by nature are not animals. They do know the difference between right and wrong. Listen to how R.C. Sproul puts it. In Romans chapter 1, the medium of nature reveals God to all people. Let me just pause right here and define the word medium. Medium is not like what is in between large and small. Medium, uh, think of it in terms of the media. So the way that the news gets to you is through the media. Uh, Think about Jesus Christ as our mediator, our go-between between God and man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Sproul says here in Romans chapter 1, this is speaking about creation, in Romans chapter 1, the medium of nature reveals God to all people. So there is a, there is a, 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 there's some media going on there. God is revealing himself through nature. Uh, he goes, Sproul goes on to say, in Romans chapter two, we speak of immediate general revelation. The term immediate is not used with respect to time. So if I say to you, I need an immediate response, that means I need a response right away. He's not using the word immediate with respect, with respect to time, but he's using the word immediate, meaning without any media, without any go-between, without any mediator. Um, um, Sproul goes on, immediate general revelation is that which God gives without some intervening medium. Simply put, Immediate general revelation is the knowledge of God that he plants in our souls. This revelation is given apart from our reading of the Bible or looking at nature. Therefore, we know God both mediately through nature and immediately through the sense of his deity that we have in our souls. Let me re-explain this because I don't think I explained it very well. 
God is communicating with all people. There are a couple of different ways that he does this. One of them is through nature that is mediate. You look at nature, you conclude there's a God. There is also immediate communication, and that is apart from any means, God himself just speaks directly to the heart. And that is what is being referred to here. You understand the difference between mediate and immediate. Mediate is with a Bible. Immediate is without a Bible. And God has communicated to the Gentiles in an immediate way. Here's an illustration of this. Back on May 13th, which was Mother's Day, 2001, a young lady by the name of Sarah Graham visited our church. As Providence would have it that day, her car broke down right in front of the church, and Peter LaRuffa, who was then our youth pastor, um, happened to be the knight in shining armor who came along to help her. As he's approaching her, I said, Hey, Peter, did you notice that girl? Maybe you might want to help her out, if you know what I'm saying. Peter looks at me and he says, Ed, I think I can figure this one out by myself. He did not need the mediator in order to... And by the way, if any of you need a mediator, okay, I'm available. But what LaRufa was saying is, I don't need a mediator. I can just look at that girl and I can tell that I want to help her out. 21 years later, they are married with four children. And I'd love to take credit for that, but he, but it was done immediately. It was done immediately and it was done immediately. I just thought that one, just immediately. In Romans chapter two, P- Paul is essentially saying, that the Gentiles have figured this out apart from the written law of God. And proof of that is that sometimes they do keep and do enforce God's law, even though they do not know what those laws are as as they are written in the law of Moses. Now, he is not saying that they do it well enough to be saved. And he is not saying that they are more morally upright than the Jews, because in most cases they are not more morally upright than the Jews. But he is simply saying that by nature they do have a knowledge of the law written upon their hearts. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, we heard the sermon just a couple of weeks ago. There's a famine in the land of Canaan, Abraham, Abram and uh, his wife, they traveled to Egypt uh, Abram says, hey, you need to lie about the fact that you are my wife. Tell them that you are my sister. And uh, she uh, goes into the house of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh realizes, wait a minute, this, this is not actually his sister. This is his wife. She's his half-sister, but whatever. He, he's being deceptive. How does Pharaoh, a pagan, know that it is wrong to take someone else's wife? He doesn't have the law of God. The law of God is not going to be written for another five or six hundred years. How does he know it? He knows it because the law has been written upon his heart. But notice that there's also another proof or another witness to the fact that Gentiles possess and keep the law. It's in the second half of verse 15. I'll read the verse in its entirety. They, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts Here we go. Here's the second way that they they actually know about the existence of God and his rules. 
while their conscience, their conscience, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, the conversations they have within their own hearts and minds. You don't need to have religion in order to possess a conscience. And Paul's point here is that everyone has a conscience. Even though it is tainted by sin, even though it is hardened, even though it is twisted and distorted, everybody still has a conscience and the conscience speaks. And it, Paul says, is a witness to the truth of God's law, right and wrong. Think about what your life was like before you were saved, before you ever heard the gospel. There are so many things that you did not know, but you did know that there was a difference between right and wrong, and the way that you knew that is that God communicated it to you directly in that he gave you a conscience. Now, some people have a more sensitive conscience than others, but everyone has a conscience. Where did that come from? I mean, my goodness, if... If we are just the product of the Big Bang or evolution, how in the world did we develop a conscience? Where did that come from? It comes from God. And it is a witness to God's truth, a witness to God's law, right and wrong. And it causes conversations to happen in our minds, conflicting thoughts. Sometimes... As we are doing something wrong, we tell ourselves, even if it is ever so faintly, you know what you're doing is wrong. And then we tell that part of ourselves to to shut up, and we suppress that, and we, we try not to think about it, and it comes back, and it says, you know that what you're doing is wrong. And sometimes, not as often, but sometimes, we even excuse ourselves and say, you know, I did that, and it really was the right thing to do. And so the, there are these conflicting thoughts or conversations within the mind of every human being. It doesn't matter whether they own a Bible or not. They're still having these conversations where the conscience is at work speaking to what is right and to what is wrong. Leon Morris puts it this way. Those who have no law have convictions about what they do. Their thoughts about their actions sometimes take the form of severe accusation, and sometimes of acquittal, end quote. Those who have no law have convictions about what they do. And you know what he's talking about, and so do I. And Paul's point here is that everyone has a law in the form of a conscience. Again, let me quote R.C. Sproul. Both Jew and Greek have consistently defied God, and they will be judged according to the light they have been given. The Jews have a greater judgment because they have a greater light, but the Gentiles are not without light, end quote. And so as we move on into verse 16, just know that the conscience is at play proving right and wrong. But as we look grammatically at verse 16, it is awkward as it moves in our English Bibles. Let me read 15 into 16. They show that the works of the law, they show the works of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It seems to be saying that at the final judgment, 
your conscience will be there and will still be at work to accuse you or even excuse you. It's not saying that you will be your own judge or that you will determine your own fate. But it is saying that just as the Jews are going to be judged by a written standard, that is the law of Moses, Gentiles are judged by the law of conscience and the inward debate concerning what is right and wrong. Now, this is not Paul saying, when you get to the judgment, you can grade your own paper and just put the score at the top. He's not saying that. It's more like saying that God is saying in the judgment, I have absolute proof that you are guilty. And the proof is that you have occasionally exercised morality. And that is proof that you have had information. You have had the law put in your heart and you know it's there. And you prove that you know it's there because sometimes you do good. You don't steal from your employer. Every time you didn't steal from your employer, you agreed with the law that it was good. Well, I never read thou shalt not steal. You didn't need to read that. You knew that it was wrong. You didn't cheat on your test. You, 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 you earned your degree without cheating. Well, I never read anything in the Bible about cheating. You didn't have to read anything. You helped the poor and needy. Well, I thought it was a good thing to help the poor and needy. Yes, why did you think it was a good thing to help the poor and needy? It is because that was put in your heart by me. Well, I, you know, I, I was benevolent. Well, how did you know to be benevolent? It is because God put it in your heart. And you prove that you know that the law is there when you disapprove of the sin of others. Have you ever been disgusted at someone who has committed adultery? You shouldn't have cheated on your wife. Why is that wrong? You know that it's wrong because God has put that in your heart. You should be in jail for that embezzlement. Who told you that stealing is wrong? Like, Where, where does this law even come from? I mean, you, you don't know the Bible. You don't read the Bible. How do you know it's wrong? I know it's wrong because I know that it's wrong, and the reason that I know that it's wrong is because God has put it there. And you know that it's there because your conscience will not let you rest. Plus, you have had tens of thousands of hours of dialogue with yourself where you discuss what is right and what is wrong. And all of the above are not as accurate or as detailed as the law of Moses. And none of the above can save you or make you right with God. But here's what they can do. It can produce enough evidence in the final judgment for there to be a meaningful discussion in which everyone will have to agree with God when all the facts are laid out and say, you know, you're right. I really am bad. And when our external deeds are judged, we're going to be in trouble. But when our secrets, that is our secret thoughts, are judged, we are going to be in big trouble. I have lived a far worse life in my mind than I have in my deeds. My motives are far worse than the actual things that I have carried out. Everything here, it says, is going to be revealed. And when the evidence is weighed, I'm not going to be able to say that I was a pretty good person. In fact, the opposite is true. 
When everything is laid bare and open, there's going to be no defense. There's going to be no excuse. I will be guilty before God. And this is true of all people, those who have the law, those who do not have the law. Let me put it another way. Take the person on the planet who has the lowest standards of morality. That has to be somebody, I'm sure that that person is not in this room, but let's take the person on planet Earth right now who has the lowest standard of of morality. They have the hardest conscience, practically a non-functioning conscience. They have no moral upbringing. They have no knowledge of God or his word whatsoever. There is the lowest bar imaginable. Even that person has moral standards. There are some moral standards that that person has. And here's the kicker. They can't even live up to their own standards, no matter how low they are. And the bottom line is, in the final day, all of the secrets will be revealed, including everything that you have thought, and nobody is going to be able to stand that judgment. Nobody. Let's suppose that during the notices, as the British say, or announcements, as we say, that Peter were to stand up and he were to say, we invite you all to come back tonight because the entirety of the life of, and then he says, your name is going to be on display tonight. There will be a movie of their life. Everything will be there, including subtitles, which will reveal every thought which has gone through their head. Would you yourself come back to see that movie of your life? I would change my identity and move. I wouldn't be able to live with the shame. But in the final day, that is exactly what is going to happen. It's all going to be laid out full. The secrets of men are going to be revealed through Jesus Christ. He is the one that is going to be the judge. Now, here's the question. How in the world does the word gospel, which is in verse 16, fit into the judgment where the secrets of men will be revealed? Well, in a sense, the word gospel doesn't fit in because Paul is not saying that the good news of Jesus Christ saving and forgiving sinners will be at play among unbelieving Gentiles in the final judgment. He says, Jesus will judge according to my gospel. The word according is a musical term and it means in harmony with. And how does the gospel harmonize with judgment? Well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day. But the gospel is also that Jesus Christ ascended and is seated and he will judge the living and the dead. And if Christ had stayed in the grave, the gospel would not come into play in the judgment. But Jesus did come back from the dead and he will judge the living and the dead in the final day. The judgment of all men is in accord with the gospel in that the risen Christ is the judge, and through him all of the secrets are going to be revealed. That's the text. Here are five closing observations. Number one, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. Uh, let's look at the big picture purpose of the text. The passage 
is convincing the Jew of his guilt before God. Why? Because if a Gentile who has no written form of the law can in some ways obey the law of God, and the Gentile will be judged according to the light that he has, then arguing from the greater to the lesser or the lesser to the greater, if the Gentile who has no law will keep the law, how can you who have the law escape the judgment when in fact you do have the law? You as a Jew will have a stricter judgment because you have the law but you have not obeyed it. Therefore, his overarching point is that you are not at an advantage simply by having the law. You have to obey the law. Jesus spoke of Gentiles who will have an easier time in the judgment than Jews who have a greater knowledge or those who have had miracles performed for them who have much greater knowledge. Listen as I read Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities, this is Jesus, where most of his mighty works or miracles had been done because they did not repent. What did he say? He said, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and those works were not done in the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, well, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Does that mean that the people of Tyre and Sidon will go to heaven? No, it doesn't. But it means that their judgment will not be as fierce. And you, Capernaum, this is where most of his miracles were done. Will you be exalted to the heaven? No, you won't. You'll be brought down to the grave or to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you, and there were so many mighty works done in Capernaum, even if we were to write them all, the books of the world would not be able to contain them. If they had been done in Sodom, Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. To whom much is given, much is required. Likewise, those of you who came to church this morning are more accountable than those who never saw a Bible or those who never heard the name of Jesus. You have accumulated responsibility and accountability by virtue of the fact that you've come here today to hear the gospel. To whom much is given, much is required. Observation number two. You may feel free to speak God's truth to all human beings because everything we learned in verses 12 through 16 tell us clearly that we can have a confidence to speak God's truth to all people no matter how godless that person may seem to be on the outside. Oftentimes I think to myself, I'm not even going to waste my breath here in speaking to this person because they're not going to understand what I'm saying. They don't have a context for it. They don't have a background. They are not uh, favorably disposed or predisposed to what I'm saying. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut right now. When in reality, I don't know what's going on in that person's heart. But based upon Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, something is going on in that person's heart. There is 
immediate revelation from God to that person, which tells them the difference between right and wrong. And they do have a conscience and they have had conversations within themselves where they both excuse and accuse themselves. All of this is going on in their mind, even though their exterior may be very cold and hard. And I say, oh, they won't understand. I don't know that they won't understand. In fact, I should speak to them because God has already been speaking to them directly. They may push back and they may argue and they may not like me. But the truth of the matter is they do have a conscience and they will remember what you have said. And when truth is spoken, that person will have to fight to suppress it. And the more truth that you give them, the harder they are going to have to fight to suppress it. I think many of you know the missionary that we support in Key West, uh, Bill Welzine. Back in the early 70s, he made it his goal to grow his hair to his waist and to hitchhike around the world with no money. His hair made it most of the way, and he made it as far as, I think, from Oregon to Jordan. As he would hitchhike, he would often be picked up by... Christian evangelist. And every time they would try to witness to him, he would become uneasy and angry. He would also be picked up by Buddhists, and he would be picked up by Jehovah's Witnesses, and he would be picked up by other people espousing different religions. And as an open-minded thinker, that never bothered him. He was always willing to enter into a dialogue. But any time the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought up, he was uneasy. Why? Because he knew that it was true, and he was actively trying to suppress it. Jesus bothered him. Jesus bothers people. You need to speak not based upon what the person looks like on the outside. You need to speak based upon the fact that this text is saying God has already spoken to them. And if your message appears to fall flat, and in most cases it will appear to fall flat, you don't need to be discouraged because you have no idea what's going on in that person's heart or their conscience. It's not you who has to do the convincing. It is God using his truth to make the person aware of what is right and what is wrong and how Jesus Christ saves sinners. Old illustration, I've used it many times, but we have many new people in the church, so I'll use it again. I'm at Billy Carlisle's fifth birthday party. I'm his neighbor. I walk over there. I'm sitting in the the living room, and uh, the people are all drinking beer. And again, I'm raised as a fundamentalist. I'm taught that Christians don't drink beer. I know now that they do, to the glory of God. I myself don't, but I understand that Christians do. The Bible says don't be drunk. It doesn't say anything about drinking a beer. But as a five-year-old fundamentalist, I didn't know this. And I announced to the room of adults, you're all going to hell because you're drinking beer. (laughs) A decade later, a woman that was in that room got saved. And she told my father, she said, for 10 years, I have not been able to forget that Eddie Moore told me I was going to hell. Like she couldn't get it out of her mind. Why? Because God is already at work in people. Again, I hope you do not misinterpret the point of that story. I am not saying the beer drinkers go to hell. I'm saying that sinners go to hell And the fact that this woman told she was going to hell by a small, unconverted, 
fundamentalist, legalistic child stuck with her. You can speak God's truth to all people. Number three, just because a person feels guilty does not necessarily mean that they are saved. Judas felt very guilty, but he was not saved. Feeling guilty is not a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. Sometimes we will see someone at church and they'll be crying, or they will in some way profess Christ and they'll be crying and they'll be broken or whatever. That is a good sign that is not the only sign. Guilt feelings in and of themselves only prove that the person is human. They do not prove that they are saved. And sometimes we will see someone tear up confessing what they have done that is wrong. And I say, amen. And we will say, wow, God is really at work in them. God has really saved them. God has really broken them. Maybe, maybe not. You know what we'll tell? It is not the immediate tears. It is time that will tell. It's very possible for unsaved, unconverted people to feel deep remorse. Why? Because they have immediate general revelation. They have a conscience. Even if they don't have the law of God, they have a conscience and people feel badly about what they do and they cry about what they do. Are they saved? I don't know. That is not the proof that someone is saved. Well, I must have been saved because when it happened, I was crying and I felt so bad. No, no, no. That is not the way that you look at whether or not you're saved. The fact that you are crying, all that means is you are not an animal. Proof that you are saved is that you believe in Jesus Christ and that you love him and that you walk with him and that you are trusting in him and that you are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and that you love the brethren. We know that we passed from death to life because we love the brethren, because you love the church. A person who felt really bad and was just in a pool of tears, but yet does not love the church, is not a saved person. When you sin, not only are you to feel remorse, but you are to actually repent. 2 Corinthians 7.10 for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is the unconverted person crying because they feel badly about what they've done. Godly grief is the person crying because of what they've done and then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, repenting. Just because a person's gotten all emotional doesn't necessarily mean that they are saved. Does your sorrow translate into a changed life, or repentance. If not, you have not been born again. You have only been born. Number four, observation number four. Your secrets are not really secret. God knows them, and they will be revealed and judged in the final day by Christ Jesus. And, and when I say secrets here, I'm also referring to your thoughts. When those are revealed in the judgment, you will not be able to stand, and nor will I. Psalm 139 tells us that God knows everything about us and that we cannot run from him and that we cannot hide from him and that he knows everything. How deep does the everything go? Well, in Psalm 139, verse 4, it says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows what we're going to say before we even say it. 
And David, who wrote this psalm, is fully aware of the fact that God is fully aware. But don't stop there. David is also fully aware that he himself, David, is not fully aware of his own sin. And so he prays this amazing prayer at the end of Psalm 139. And this is the prayer that we need to pray. In other words, God knows everything, but we don't know everything about ourselves. We need to learn more about ourselves so that we can repent. And here's the prayer to pray in order to learn more about even your own secrets. David says, search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Put me on trial right now. I don't want this trial to occur at the final judgment. Try me right now and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, reveal my sin to me and then enable me to repent. I want to know what my sin is right now in my heart so that I can get rid of it. You know, when the doctor says, uh, I'm going to order an MRI for you, what is the doctor saying? The doctor is saying, there's something wrong in there, or maybe something wrong in there, but I'm not able to see it or detect it right now. We need to look on the inside and see what is going on with an either a CAT scan or an X-ray or an MRI. It will reveal what's wrong but you can't see it yourself. What David is saying here is, Holy Spirit, will you please give me a spiritual MRI so that I can see what is going on in the inside? We should be praying the same thing. Why? Because it's going to come out sooner or later. And believe me, sooner is infinitely better than later. It is impossible to conceal sin. It's either going to come out now or in the judgment. Now is better. And so pray like David. Your secrets are not really secret. And finally, number five, Jesus is the only way to pass through the judgment. In other words, the gospel is of first importance. As we're going through the book of Romans, we're going through it slowly, and granted there's nothing in the text explicitly which speaks about Jesus being our forgiveness, but, 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 but a, a chapter and a half later, we're going to be able to see that clearly. And there is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be forgiven. You're going to go into the judgment and you want to get through it without being condemned. And the only way for that to happen is to have your sins washed away. And the only way that you can have your sins washed away is to believe that Jesus died in your place and he paid for all of your sins. Your public sins, your private sins, your sins in speech, your sins in thought. And if Jesus died for your sins and washed them away through his death on the cross, And if he was raised for your justification, then you will be justified. And you will not be charged in the final judgment. You will possess the righteousness of Christ with your sins washed away. And so I ask you very simply, are you trusting in your own good deeds or have you trusted in Christ to save you and to forgive you? If not, today is the day of salvation. You will enter judgment alone and unprotected without Christ. Don't do that. Don't do that. God loves you. I hope you remembered that. I told you to think about that at the beginning. I wanted you to think about that throughout. God loves you. He knows everything about you, but he still loves you. And he offers you today forgiveness. And he proved that he loved you in that he gave Christ to die in your place. It's a very, very simple equation. In the final judgment, it's either going to be you with Christ as your advocate, or it's going to be you alone with everything open and naked before God. So today is the day when you 
must be saved. Go to Jesus and cry out to him to save you. Go to Jesus before it is too late. And if you go to him in faith, he will save you and he will forgive you. And if you cast your sins upon him, he will cast those sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And you say, wait a minute, I don't understand. I've got all these sins. that They, they actually are real sins. They, they, God knows about them. Like, how do they just, like, disappear? Like, how, 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 do we get, how do we get rid of these? Old illustration, probably somewhat apocryphal, but I think in some sense it is also true. But it goes something like this. A man is driving a Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce breaks down calls for Rolls-Royce mechanic. The mechanic comes, fixes the car, he drives away, but the mechanic gives him no bill. A month or two passes, and the man, thinking he should receive a bill, is bothered, and so he contacts Rolls-Royce and says, my name is such and such, I called you on such and such a date, such and such a man came, fixed the car, I just want to make it right, I just want to pay my bill. Representative of Rolls-Royce said, sir, we never have a record of any Rolls-Royce ever having broken down anywhere. You get to the judgment. You say, how am I going to pay this bill? I mean, all this, I mean, this is, it's, 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 I mean, it's just ridiculous. God looks at the record book and he says, I have no record of you ever having committed a sin ever. How is that possible? It's because his blood has washed away our sins, and you can have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. That's the power of the gospel. 48 down, 385 to go, which means what? It means we're getting there. Father in heaven, I don't want to go into the judgment alone. Lord, I don't want these people to go into the judgment alone. Lord, please give them the grace to call upon Christ now, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.